Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. So what's going on in America these days in 2020? The weirdest year perhaps in its history. Uh, We've had a number of shows about fascism in America, the return to the Middle Ages, the end of the country, a return to some sort of religious fundamentalism. And there's a new book out, which I think somehow brings together many of these strands. Um, It's written by Carl Hoffman, who's not an American expert. He's he's based in America. He's an American travel journalist who spent a lot of his time in very obscure places like New Guinea. He's a travel writer uh, who's written for a number of different publications. And he spent a lot of 2019 embedded at the Trump rallies, if that's the right word. He's written this new book called Liar's Circus, which is a a wonderfully vivid, troubling, and incredibly readable account of his experience um, at the Trump rallies. Uh, Carl, you went from uh, New Guinea to the Midwest. There's something uh, Conradian about your narrative. Did you find the heart of darkness in middle America? Well, I mean, the heart of darkness is lurking uh, everywhere, you know, throughout. Um, So I would say in a lot of ways, yeah, I did. I mean, I've spent, you know, I lived for months at a time in an incredibly remote uh, village in a 10,000 square mile swamp with no roads and no stores in New Guinea for a book and with former cannibals and headhunters. And um, in a way that there are parts of that that was much easier uh, and more natural than being on the road with the Trumpians. I don't want to take that too far. I had a, you know, as people will see, they read, I mean, I actually made friends among the people I I was hanging out with on the road at Trump's rallies. And, you know, it was, uh, there were good times, there were some good moments, but ultimately, you know, in aggregate, it was an incredibly depressing uh, experience that left me really sort of emotionally exhausted and, and empty feeling. You note in the book at the beginning that you've traveled around Africa, you've traveled around Asia, many so-called developing countries, but nothing quite prepared you for the experience of traveling around America, about how dead it has become. America now is, is less developed, more unequal, more problematic than many parts of Africa and Asia. What's going on in your mind? Well, I think for, I mean, everybody, you know, in, in so many ways, the, the coasts have become these engines, these economic engines, and the great you know, blue collar work, mining, you know, iron working, steel, all those things, you know, have, have tended to, you know, globalization and mechaniz- 
mechanization and all those things have changed those. And, and, you know, farms went from being, you know, you could make a living on small farms and now you need 5,000, 10,000 acres. So there's this, been this great hollowing out of vast swaths of America and rural America. You drive around, whether it's Kansas or Oklahoma or, you know, anywhere. And, and they're just, these empty towns and dead towns. And, and, you know, there wasn't just shallow observation in my conversations with people, you know, the people, a woman said in a place called Wellington, Kansas, which was absolutely dead, beautiful little town that was, that was a, a hollow shell of its former self. And sorry, there's a dog barking and sirens. I hope that's okay. Um, it's America. Um, said to me that, you know, she had been raised on a farm and she'd raised her kids on a farm and that nobody could, you know, eventually they had to sell the farm and, and move into town and nobody lived on farms anymore. And, uh, you know, that you take that over and over and over again. And then on top of it, you put this, you know, the way Walmarts and Dollar Generals and chain stores have taken over every little, I mean, over and over and over again. I mean, it's, it's a trope, it's a cliche, but it's true. You know, people would say to me, the minute Walmart opened up, the town died. And so you're in these little towns and there's no, you know, the central business district, often full of uh, quaint little brick buildings um, with charm are completely empty and then you know either the whole place is empty or on the outskirts on the highway bypass there's just row after row after row of these chain stores and you know I, it hit me that you know what's it like to live in a place that you know in which no decisions are made you know from locally and that everything you buy and every store you go into is a some you know weird remote corporate you know made in a weird remote corporate headquarters and i think it would be incredibly not just depressing but i think there's a sense of loss of power um that the, 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 the america you describe um Carl seems to be a place which has lost its soul. Uh, you say that you've never felt lonely. Even when you were in New, New Guinea, you felt uh, somehow connected. Um, but um, loneliness is the defining quality of life in America, uh, which of course uh, is one of the reasons why Trump's rallies are so successful. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at cities or my, you know, I live in Washington, D.C. in a very urban part. And, you know, I don't, I think, you know, people live in much tighter communities and they, um, you know, there's a farmer's market and there are old bodegas that have been there for decades. And there's this still a much, I mean, it's so ironic in a world in, in these cities in which there are a lot of immigrants and a lot of people of color and, you know, still in some places, a lot of poverty, there's also a lot of localism and there's a lot of um, family life in the streets that you don't see in so much of middle America. And it's, and it's really striking. Uh, you're very interested in the book in the reappearance of fascism. You quote, Frederick uh, Finkelstein, quite a lot in the book. He's a previous guest on this show. 
You also are, are interested in the work of uh, Elias Canetti, the Bulgarian theorist, crowds. What is the role of the crowd in the Trump rally, um, Carl? And perhaps before that, you might just very briefly explain what you did. How did you integrate, ingratiate yourself into the Trump world of the live event? Well, I wasn't sure what to do or how to do it, but my idea was just to go. And that's what I did. My first rally was in Minnesota in Minneapolis. And, you know, I got to the rally the day before and I went down that after late afternoon evening to check it just to kind of do a recon and scope it out. And Minneapolis has all these parking garages and sort of sky tunnels. So I didn't find a crowd, but then I found this burgeoning growing crowd in one of the skyways. And, um, you know, there were like 15 or 20 guys when I got there and I wasn't really prepared, but I took all these photos. It was a guy with a, you know, six foot life-size cardboard cutout of Donald Trump. I had my, I took my picture with my arm around him. And then I thought, well, I'll, I'll go, you know, I'll come back in the morning at dawn and that'll be plenty of time. And so that's what I did. I got there around six in the morning. And of course, I'd, I'd aired because the, the line had grown throughout the night. And there were, you know, probably a thousand people, 1500 people already. But that's what I started doing. And then I realized that I had to go there earlier and earlier. So then, you know, in Dallas that day before the rally, I just plumped my chair down. But then in rally number three, I realized that I really didn't want to be even number 500. I wanted to be the front of the line. I wanted to be with the so-called the super fans, the front row Joes. So I went in Tupelo, which was my Mississippi, my third rally. I got there full two, two and a half days prior to the rally. And I parked my car in this giant arena parking lot and went out there and, you know, walked around the rally. And sure enough, I found them. There were five guys sitting there. All right. So Carl, uh, you, you found your community. You were lonely in America. You found a country completely decimated. And in a, in a peculiar way, in an ambivalent way, you rediscover America or you find a way of thinking about America through these, these front row Joes, these hardcore Trump fans. Yeah, I mean, you know, once I, I became, you know, sixth in line in Tupelo and everything looked up, then I wasn't lo as lonely. And, uh, you know, people spent hours in the night and the wind and the cold. And that's when the strangest, you know, weirdest, you know, I learned that Michelle had a penis and that, um, you know, yeah. the Obama's no, children. Well, it's not, uh, not, not only Michelle had a penis, her real name is Michael. Yeah. Yes, yes. And the children are adopted. You know, they're all <laughs> part of a operation. And, um, you know, all in, in and nobody's kidding. That's the thing. You know, you're really in this discussion. And, you know, I ate with them and hung out with them and uh, went out and dined with them in, uh, in the evenings. And, uh, I, you know, I, then I started texting with them. And so every rally, I was just in the front top 10 places and um, slowly worked my way up to the rail, which was really the, the whole. Yeah, that was your climax front. when you were right at the front. Up, up, and I, yeah. I, I, sent a, I sense a kind of a, an ambivalence in the book. On the one hand, you like these guys, you bring them to life. They all have their own stories. Uh, they're not really surprising, but they're stories about faith and loss and meaning for older white men. 
But on the other hand, you're horrified by their ignorance, by their implicit racism, and by the spectacle that they're helping to promote and bring to life. Well, I had imagined that when I did this, I would be having these sort of long, in-depth conversations about politics and that we could have, you know, real conversations. But I discovered I couldn't do that. Like, I couldn't have any conversation, really, because we were coming from such different places. You know, these people don't read the newspaper. They believe the, the Post or the Times is fake news and... Um, and they don't often, they don't even watch Fox News. You know, a common refrain is, uh, and this is the worst thing to hear of all, is when somebody looks you in the eye and they say, you know, I'm not a sheep. Don't be a sheeple. Do your own research. And that means they get all of their news from Twitter and Facebook. And, you know, then some on OAN, you know, One American News, and it means they have no news whatsoever. They have no factual information whatsoever. And it's all conspiracy theory. And I thought like QAnon, there's been a lot about QAnon lately as if people are just waking up to it. But, you know, when I went into this, I thought, well, you know, at a Trump rally, there's 22,000 people, maybe, you know, a few hundred are nuts and believe in the, the crazy stuff. But I discovered everyone believes it in some way or shape or form. Every single person, I never met a, a, a person in a rally who doesn't believe in some just bizarre, false information. I mean, I'm talking to this woman in Dallas who's the, the kindest. She's traveled to India. She's traveled to Jamaica. She's smart. She's, um, you know, it's told me she used to be a, a, an Obama supporter. And I said to her, you know, what really surprises me is all the conspiracy theories. And she sort of laughed. And then, you know, a minute later, she said, well, I don't know, you know, uh, we're talking about Hillary Clinton. She goes, well, I don't know, you know, nine, I don't have 99 friends who committed suicide. Do you? And I was like, well, what do you mean? And then I realized that she's talking about, you know, Vince Foster and this whole theory. She, and then she told me, well, you know, I, I mean, I absolutely believe Hillary would kill to win, you know, absolutely. And then people will say, well, have yeah. you seen the Frazzle Drip video? And, you know, you can hear the babies crying in the tunnel. And I mean, this is, goes on constantly. So you got this great quote in the book. You're trying to untangle this. You said, I have been trying to untangle the various strands that pulled people to Donald Trump. And everywhere I turned stood God. But it's a particular kind of God, isn't it? It's a, it's a very American God. It is an American God. I mean, it, it was something that I didn't fully grasp, um, you know, even growing up and, and until I went to the rallies. And I said to this woman, actually the same woman who told me that, you know, she didn't know 99 people who had committed suicide. And I said, the, the lights in the rally are so bright. I'm surprised at their brightness because they're these hyper bright, like there's no shadows in a Trump rally. And I thought, well, in a, in a rally, the lights would go down and there'd be a spotlight on Donald Trump when he came out, but that doesn't happen. And she said, well, it's church. And that started me thinking and looking and researching. And I realized that a Trump rally is not just church, it's a certain kind of church. It's really, the, there's a very, this hasn't talked about very much, but there's a, there's a really conscious, I believe, effort on the campaign to co-op this long tradition, this sort of, not just white Christian fundamentalists, but it's this millenarian tradition in which mm -hmm. 
um, there have been these great awakenings uh, that, that, that have been powerful in American history. I mean, you know, America was founded by a, an early one. I mean, the, the, you know, you're talking about, you know, the Puritans. I mean, they right. were... And, and know, it's a, a millenarian, as you suggested, a millenarian tradition that was directly exported, not from early modern Europe, but essentially from medieval Europe. So it's, it's a peasant med, millenarianism, well, no, I mean, the better no, word. That's sort of wrong. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's this idea that came about when um, Protestants started making money and they challenged the landed gentry and they, and the church of England said, you know, you can't, you can't have this property. You can't have this money. And so they, that's what one of the unique things of American, you know, culture, religious capitalistic culture is this idea that, that worshiping God and earning money and making money are, you know, twins and that they go together, that there's something sacred about that, that freedom to do that. And, you know, that was, you know, it's a very, it's all based on this idea of, 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 of whiteness also. And, you know, this idea that, you know, one of the great icons, you say, what's an American icon? You think, oh, the Marlboro man, the cowboy. But another icon is the preacher, the fire and brimstone preacher. He's a white male. Yeah. And you, one, one of the, the more troubling, and, and there's a lot of troubling stories in your book, but it's, it's a wonderful read, was the story of the black woman who showed up and, and, and tried to claim that she'd been there overnight and, and none of the white guys would acknowledge her. But if it had been a white man, my, my white male, they would have all supported. So, so there's an implicit racism, even if it's not always overt. Well, you know, that's one of the things people are always saying to when you start talking to them that they, they bristle at the suggestion that they're racist or that they're being called racist. And they, you know, my very first when I walked into that first crowd in Minneapolis, you know, one of the very first people in line was a black man in a MAGA hat and a red, white and blue baseball shirt. And I was shocked. And I was like, Wow. And then when I came back the next morning, I started seeing all these black faces and I was I was so surprised. But then I realized that, you know, the more time I spent that it was a lot because I weren't I was wasn't expecting any. But really, there were, you know, there'd be a couple hundred black faces out of 10 or 22,000, depending. There's two really rally sizes and that, you know, the the whole idea of so much. I mean, racism is about power. And, and, you know, none of these people, you know, the, the Trumpians are always happy to have a black person next to them or an LGBTQ person. I mean, you know, they, they love those tokens, but they love them as tokens. They don't want, if there were 10,000 black people at a rally, Trumpians would freak out. Yeah. And I think that the, one of the things you, you do in the book is you, you see through the symbolism. So as you say, the fact that there are blacks there doesn't mean that this is not an intrinsically racist movement. You also do a very good job, I think, describing the noise of these events and the kind of music. The, the irony of the paradox, again, it's probably lost on a lot of these people, is that a lot, of, a lot of their key songs actually contradict fundamentally what they stand for, whether it's uh, the YMCA uh, anthem or the Rolling Stones. What is the role of music at the Trump events? How do you interpret that? 
Well, you know, I think that, I mean, the title of my book is, you know, A Journey into This Upside Down World. And I think that everything about Trump's rallies and Trumpism, period, is this alternative universe, trying to create an alternative universe and trying to, you know, what's up is down. And in the rallies, you see that so powerfully. And the music is, is you know, I thought it was, it was going to be sappy country music, but it's, you know, I'm a baby boomer. It was the, it was the, you know, it was the music of our youth. I mean, the rock and roll, not, not, you know, Lee Greenwood only when Trump came out, but before that it was Rolling Stones. I mean, Prince, I mean, Tina Turner, you know, a queen and you know, that you, you know, people are dancing. I mean, it is a, you know, and you get in a rally, you know, the president may come on at seven or, you know, he's usually late. So seven thirty or eight, but, you know, they open the doors around 2, 2.30. So you're in there for hours and you listen to this and the music is at, you know, ear splitting decibels. I mean, a lot of people wear, you know, foam earplugs. And, you know, you're just like, wow, this music is so great. And, you know, but you stop and think about it. I mean, you know, the craziest thing, like in a place like Mississippi or Kentucky, I mean, there's always a lot of evangelicals at Trump's rallies. But in the South, there is even more. So you get a place like, you know, um, Mississippi or Kentucky and, you know, the song that lights people up, that ignites their souls. I mean, we're talking 20,000 people dancing and they do a pantomime of the letters Y-M-C-A. And, and, you know, they, they're torched with their phones is the song, you know, by, you know, the village people dressed up in, you know, faux, police costumes and singing about, you know, gay liberation. And, you know, they don't, they don't like focus on it or the Rolling Stones period. I mean, here's an anti-globalist, you know, racist really, who's campaigning on the otherness of everyone playing, you know, a, a, a British band channeling Mississippi blues. I think you do a great job in the book, uh, presenting Trump as a, um, I don't know, a virtual preacher uh, in this uh, weird 21st century fundamentalist revival. And there's, it's very entertaining and absurd and all the rest of it. But on the other hand, you're also very serious at the end of the book. You, you suggest that Trump is a killer and that as a killer, he needs to keep killing. How chilling was overall the experience for you? Not so much in the friends you made because they seem very decent guys. But in watching Donald Trump up close and his gang of collaborators, his family and his political supporters. I felt it was incredibly frightening. And the longer that I stayed in that ecosystem, the more frightening it became. You know, I was reading this book by Elias Canetti, Crowds in Power, which I recommend everybody reading. And it's like he's talking about, he had fled uh, the Nazis and he's a uh, Bulgarian uh, Jew uh, who had fled the Nazis and it you know he won the Nobel uh, liter literature prize in I think 1984 and he you know it's like he was writing about Trump and this idea of <clears throat> so in every rally the whole if it's in Texas say then the whole Texas delegation is there or much of it you know uh, uh, Ted Cruz is there. Rick Perry is there. Way di you know, down ballot. The, the Texas Secretary of State is there. All this down ballot people. 
and there um, and Trump does this whole thing, and you can see. I mean, to me, the the rallies are all about power and about cultivating Trump's power. And the the thing that he does that, that amazed me was that he would sort of in the middle of this ranging crazy speech, he would start calling upon these people and calling them out. And he would always tell a little story. And the story was always a variation of the same thing, which was that, you know, this person challenged me and I destroyed him. And now he's very loyal. And he did that in particularly with Ted Cruz. And he's literally standing above Ted Cruz. You know, and Cruz is kind of down there. And there and was the whole debating about, thing, right? Where he, well, he says, uh, Cruz won the debating championship at Harvard and Princeton. And here I am, a, a novice, and I beat him. And I destroyed him. And you realize that he uses the rallies to 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 um, dangle people before you know you've got it's intense like you've got twenty two thousand people screaming Trump 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 or you know there's a pause and a you know a a a, a burly you know blue collar man will yell out I love you and I mean it's really powerful and you get these people like McConnell or Ted Cruz who are dangled before the crowd and the, you know, the message is clear. It's, I can give you this, I can give you this crowd, but I can take it away too. Okay, Carl. So what's going to happen in November if he loses? Are the lights just going to come up? Is it going to be the end of the event? And people will troop out and say, well, that was fun. We had four years where we ran the world and now we're going back to being, Christians or mechanics or unemployed people, are these the hardcore, are they gonna accept his defeat if he loses? You know, I, it's really hard to say what, what's gonna happen, but I think that the real problem is that Trump and the GOP have corrupted the idea of truth to such an extent that, and people are so, um, you know, drawn into QAnon and the other conspiracy theories and this idea that there is no, you know, that, that, that the Post or the Times or, you know, are, are fake, that, you know, the minute, you know, if Trump loses and even if he leaves relatively gracefully, you know, you've still got 40 million people or 30 million people who are living in this alternative universe who aren't, you know, it's not like suddenly they're going to wake up and start reading the New York Times. And, so, the and, light, so the lights really won't come on. Well, the lights were already on or the, the, the lights won't go off and they won't all troop home and accept that they had a great four years and now they have to come back to reality. I don't see it. I mean, the one sort of uh, interesting thing in all this, I mean, which is, you know, the thing that has destroyed Trump is the coronavirus. And the way, you know, it's hard to, 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 to me, the most incredible thing was the fact, the way only 6,200 people showed up in yeah. Tulsa. You, you ran the book. Tulsa rally. It's you a know? wonderful book. And uh, 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 as I told you at the beginning, I tell everyone who comes on this show, their books are wonderful. I don't always mean it, but with you, I really do. Liar's Circus, uh, really, it's a must read for anyone who doesn't who can't understand America. It's beautifully written, it's short, it can be read like Conrad's Heart of Darkness in one setting. It will both chill, amuse, uh, and, uh, and, and, and it's one of the best books of the year. Finally, uh, Carl, as I said, I'm 
promoting your book. It's, uh, it's out now. Um, what else should people be reading? You, you mentioned you're a travel writer. You mentioned uh, Kapuscinski's uh, Emperor, his book about Haile Selassie. Is that a, a good compliment to your book? Well, sure. I mean, any Kapuscinski is always a good compliment. I mean, uh, he's dead now. And so it's, it's turned out he, he might have made some things up, you know, <laughs> stretched the truth here and there. But he's a beautiful writer. And, uh, you know, the emperor. Is well, the I hope you made something up in the book. You claim to be totally honest, but I'm sure you told one or two lies, too. Oh, no, I don't make anything up. There's nothing. No, there's nothing fake there. No, absolutely not. I believe a nonfiction writer tells the truth. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.